Listening to Gore Report, a true crime podcast. Oh, I like that approach. It was a little. It's a little different, right? Yeah. Or is it? Or is it really like not different? No, it's okay. It's lit. You're just trying to make me feel better. No, it's lit. <laughs> I put so much thought in how to like not make the intro repetitive and boring, and every time I just feel like. I it's only, repetitive and boring. I don't know. I just, I'm always kicking up that notch of weird. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is what it is. It, it is what it is. Aside from our silly banter, uh, hi, everybody. We're glad you're here. If this is your first time listening to the show, then welcome. 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 We're happy to have you. And we are wishing you all a good day and a good week. And yeah, a good, good What even I, was that? I, a seizure. It was a... <laughs> we just had a complete seizure. My goodness. So, welcome to part three of Ray's Columbine coverage. We are pretty much going to dive right into things because I know you guys are probably ready to have this over with. <laughs> I know I'm ready to have it over with. Goodness. But before we do that, we do want to take some time to thank our new patrons. We got some new Gorgoats this week. So. Yes. So a big thank you to Stephanie, Christina, Z, Megan, and Issa. Thank you guys yes. so, so, so much. That is so precious. Like, I can't believe it. That's just, uh, it, it really is appreciated. Thanks so much. Man, and I am just looking forward to this being done. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness. I mean, all laughing and jokes aside, like, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Because your coverage has just been mind-blowing to me. Like, truly, I'm just, I'm so far in. But I'm also very, very excited for it to be done. Because I have a feeling that I'm going to cry again. I have a feeling that we're all going to cry again. again. So I just, uh, you know, I'm excited to see what you did for this part. I'm honestly not ready. Yeah, so this part today is going to be pretty heavy. I have done my best to try to make it a little bit uplifting after, like, just the tragicness of it. Right. Tragicness. Is that a word? <laughs> if it's not, we're making it a word, well, I suppose. tragicness. The tragicness of it. There, I used it in a sentence. Therefore, it must be a real word. Anyway, um, if you have not listened to part one or part two, then you probably want to go do that because there is a ton of information to process there is literally so much information to process on this subject that if I were to literally cover every little single itty bitty tidbit of information that came my way, this would be probably like part eight. Oh. Yeah. 
Holy shit, that's wild to think about. I mean, because there there are so many there's so many photos. There's so much news coverage. There are literal photographs of not only the crime scene, but of the diaries and the journals and their school assignments and their class schedule and all of it. Just all of it. All yeah. of it. I did link my major resource for Columbine, which was a Columbine site. I linked that in the show notes on episode one. Mm-hmm. So you might want to go check that out. They have tons of photos. And actually, they were the biggest driving resource that I had. I mean, of course, other than cross-referencing and uh, spending spending numerous hours of Just watching videos and, and weeping. Listening. And weeping and weeping the whole time. The whole time. So anyway, let me briefly recap on where we're at. In part two, we discussed that Eric and Dylan's initial plan was to blow up the school and shoot any escaping survivors of the blast. However, their plan was thwarted when the bombs didn't go off when they were supposed to which was at 11.17 a.m. during a team's lunch, where an estimated 488 people dined. They intended for the library, which was above the cafeteria, to fall due to the blast, killing everyone in the library and cafeteria. Jesus. Jesus. When they realized it wasn't going to happen, they armed themselves and began to head into the school, opening fire on any and everyone along the way. They terrorized students and faculty while causing chaos and destruction through the halls of Columbine. We left off in the library. After frightening and killing several students, they decided to head to the common room, leaving the survivors in the library deathly quiet and afraid to move. Eleven forty four AM Dylan and Eric enter the cafeteria and they stop on the landing of the stairs. Eric kneels down on one knee and he began to fire several shots at a duffel bag that contained a twenty pound propane tank that was rigged to be a bomb. A bomb that failed to detonate. Thank goodness, cause holy shit. It didn't matter that the room was littered with hundreds of backpacks and bags from, like, evacuated students. He knew exactly which one to shoot. But it didn't work. Dylan then walked over to that same bomb and he fiddled with something, like, connected to it in an attempt to detonate it. But again, nothing happened. A witness that was hiding in the cafeteria heard one of them say, quote, Today the world's going to come to an end. Today's the day we die, end quote. Oh, my God, the chills. The chills. They drank from some of the water bottles that were in the room that were left behind by fleeing students. The cafeteria CCTV showed Dylan light something small, possibly a cricket, which is a little CO2 cartridge made into an explosive, And he threw it at the propane bomb, which caused it to explode, and it started a fire in the cafeteria. So they were also firing on another propane bomb that was merely five feet away from injured Sean Graves, who was laying in the middle of the doorway, paralyzed from his injuries and pretending to be dead. 
like you remember I said in part two, he had rubbed blood on his face and he was laying halfway in the cafeteria and halfway out. And he is literally five feet away from this other propane tank and they're shooting at it, trying to get it to blow up. Goodness. I would, I would be scared shitless. Right. I, I don't know. Like if I could even pretend to be dead anymore. Cause I would just start screaming. Yeah. I just, I don't know what I would do. I really truly don't. So the explosion from the first propane bomb blew out the windows of the cafeteria and activated five sprinklers overhead. Thankfully, their attention was diverted and the second propane bomb near Sean was left alone. So if they had triggered the other bomb to detonate, investigators believed it would have been enough to bring the whole library down on top of the cafeteria. What in the fuck? Eric and Dylan leave the cafeteria, and then they head back upstairs two minutes later. So around 11.49 a.m., they headed to the main office area where an unarmed security guard and a secretary were hiding while they were on call with 911. So Eric and Dylan's movements around the school and their strategy began to shift and become unhinged at this point as they move around from like one area to another. So by 11.53 a.m., Eric and Dylan moved from the school's offices to the art hall, where they fired their guns off into the ceiling as they went. They went back down to the cafeteria again a couple minutes later, and the boys were looking absolutely defeated this time on the CCTV, like their posture was different. So the bombs hadn't exploded, and the sprinkler system put out the fire they managed to start earlier. So things aren't quite turning out the way they planned. And for a brief moment, they went into the kitchen and then they headed back upstairs at precisely 12 o'clock p.m. Around an hour after the shooting began, news crews were on the scene giving reports of two gunmen at Columbine High School, documenting the breaking news nationwide, then eventually worldwide. SWAT teams and black fatigues were gearing up to enter the school. And some of the officers on that SWAT team had kids that attended Columbine. What? Yeah, I I don't know how I could ever do a job like that and keep my shit together. I could not imagine, like, being in a SWAT team. You're about to, like, raid, like, go in. There's, there's a shooting happening at this school. A school in which you have children that are attending. Like, I could not imagine that situation. Yeah, me being a parent, I any high stress situation like that, and you know your child is inside the building. There's no way. Fuck no. Fuck I, no. <laughs> there's I. Uh. Because then I'm sorry, but your job protocols don't matter anymore. It's mama bear rules that matter now. So <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but when the Denver SWAT team started their approach. They had to do so under the cover of a commandeered fire truck because they were all getting shot at. What? Believing that they were dealing with a hostage situation, SWAT carefully swept the upper level of the school, stopping at the closed doors in the halls that separated where they were standing from the science rooms, choir room, and library. Now, they were anticipating booby traps, so they really had to take their time moving through the school. But they freed roughly 20 students 
And at this point, they were unsure whether the gunmen were even in the building anymore. Holy shit, man. So SWAT team sniper Sean Duggan tried to page his daughter who was at school, but there was no response. And yes, I said page. This was a time where we had to page each other to notify that we wanted to talk to you on the phone. Right. So I bring him up as an example that parents were going nuts trying to contact their children because this story was plastered all over the news as breaking news. So we've all seen how when something huge like this happens, it's almost immediately on TV. But these parents saw the news, started worrying over their own child, and they contacted 911 or went down to the school. It was sheer pandemonium at this point. My goodness, man. During a very short window of time, paramedics were able to rescue Sean Graves and Ann Hawkhalter, and both of them were lying outside near the cafeteria. Lance Kirkland was also rescued and immediately transported to a makeshift triage area that was just a few blocks away. And you remember in part two, I said, Lance, he was shot in the face. Oh, my, yeah, I do remember that. My God, my so God. Dan Robout was pronounced dead and left behind. And around that same time, Eric and Dylan made their way back to the library where they started firing their guns out of the broken windows, aiming directly at the emergency workers and police officers who were trying to save people and get them to safety. That is so wild. They were shooting at fucking SWAT members mm -hmm. and police officers and yes. just everybody. Just literally everybody. Everybody. Like, Jesus. The police actually had to provide cover fire for the paramedics because Eric and Dylan were rapidly and viciously shooting at them, unloading round after round. My jaw is just on the floor. Like, I mean, it's been on the floor the past two parts, but like it's on the floor. It's so, on the floor. This series of clips you're about to hear is eyewitness accounts from Sean Graves himself and paramedic Monty Fleming. And I sampled this audio from the Real Crime Documentary channel on YouTube. They put together a great video on this case. So if you'd like to watch the entire thing, I'll be linking their video in the show notes. I'm going to play that clip for you now. I drove around the south side as we're pulling into the parking lot through all the cars. See several students hiding behind cars. Several deputies with their weapons trained on the building. I couldn't figure out what woke me up, but when I did snap back to it, there was some commotion behind me, and as I overlooked my shoulder, the, there was an ambulance sitting right behind me. I saw two paramedics. One jumped out of the driver's seat and the other from the back of the ambulance, and they grabbed me, picked me up by my shirt and my belt, and they were dragging me out. And I remember just looking down to see my arms and my legs dangling. And that's when the shooters realized that somebody was down there helping us and I could see the concrete, just poofs of white dust. They were, they were opening fire on us. They were trying to kill us again. I found Medic 13's crew were struggling to get Sean Graves loaded up into the medic unit. So I came up in the middle of him, and one had the head, the other had the feet, and we stepped into the ambulance. 
saw another young man laying by the fence, and then he turned his head and made eye contact with me and said, help me. I scooped up and dumped the young man literally into the back of the ambulance so that they could get out of the gunfire. I just remember hearing that the sounds of bullets hitting the top of the ambulance, just the metal tinging, and that's, uh, I'll take that away from all of that as being a sound that I'll never forget. I have little to nothing to say after that. It was sheer... Like, the imagery, like, you listen to that, and the imagery you're getting just... I, again, it was like, chaos. I said it in part two. You've given so much more of a picture of what happened than I ever realized, that mm-hmm. I ever knew myself. I am just progressively through this getting more shocked and more heartbroken and just, I don't even know. Like, that is just absolutely brutal. Like, there's no other word for that. It's just brutal. I just. That's behavior that you would expect from, like, a grown adult who just has nothing to lose, you know, and to hear that this behavior is coming from young adults, almost grown adults, it's kind of shocking. It's more than shocking. I just, my heart just breaks for these people. I truly couldn't imagine what the, you know, going through something like this and what that would do to me for the rest of my life. I just... Right. I have no idea, man. This is a different kind of strength. (laughs) A different kind of strength these people have. Police pulled up an armored car to the main school entrance to provide cover as more students fled the building. There are hundreds of fire teams, police, SWAT, media presence, and parents swarming the area. And then you've got fleeing children coming out of the school in rows. And that is, if you watch any of the media coverage about this case, that is one of the defining pictures that you see are students running out with their hands on their heads, running out, like, at breakneck speeds. Just literally running for their lives. Right. So there is mass pandemonium going on outside the school, trying to evacuate students and reunite them with their families Students are scared, confused, and terrified, and they're clinging to family and nearby friends. Around 2 p.m., three teenagers wearing black clothes but not trench coats were detained by the police in a field near the school. I was unable to find the names of these three, but everyone would later describe the trio as friends of the gunmen. They were questioned and then later released. And I believe they were three students who were part of the actual trench coat mafia. Now, the media really went ham with the trench coat mafia thing. They were saying that Eric and Dylan were members of this clique, but they weren't. Right. This was just another example of media sensationalism. And I believe this is also the same time that Brooks Brown came forward to the police to name Eric Harris. At 2.30 p.m., two SWAT teams entered the teacher's lounge next to the kitchen, and they began securing the lower level by freeing kids in the kitchen and bathrooms, searching the uninjured for weapons before releasing them to their parents at Leewood Elementary School. Now, one team moved past a sign that was up in the window, and it said, One Bleeding to Death. This sign was made by Deidre Kusera. I hope I'm saying her name right. 
in an attempt to get help for Coach Sanders, who was quickly losing blood. And to help assist Patrick Ireland, who was shot twice in the head, Patrick pulled himself out on a second floor window and dangled there until SWAT team members pulled him to safety. He was just dangling out of a window. Yeah, that's that is the image that you you thought I was talking about earlier. Oh, that that's what you're talking about. Oh, oh, my goodness. So it's a photo that I will be including in the digital dump because this rescue was caught on camera and it is such a visceral image that really drives it home. Or at least it did for me. It definitely did for me too. It's it's really chilling as fuck to look at. I mean, really. And even though he was shot in the head, he survived this ordeal. Thank goodness. This is also the picture that was circulating heavily when people spoke about Columbine. This was one of those images that was just burned in your brain. Parents were also wandering about at the nearby Clement Park Hospital trying to find their children. So police helicopters flew overhead and hundreds of police officers patrolled the school as confusion settled in. The following is from the perspective of a parent. Tom Mauser, and he was Daniel Mauser's father. I'm going to play that clip for you now. There in, on the television was news coverage. It looked t- terrible. But I said to myself, well, if there's something going wrong at the school, certainly my son wouldn't be involved. He was not somebody who'd be in trouble or being targeted by somebody. When I got home, my wife had a very concerned look on her face. Why wasn't he calling us? So I agreed to go to another school where a number of the students were being taken in school buses after they escaped. And as I was driving, I was listening to the news coverage. And at one point, I heard them mention that they were taking some students to the hospital. And one of the ones they mentioned was a 15-year-old boy who was shot. So of course the first thing I thought was 15 years old, that's how old Daniel is. What if that's Daniel? Could that be my son? I saw parents walking out with children and I just said to myself, I want to be one of them. I want to get this over with. I want to be one of those people. After nothing happening for a while, they informed us that there was one last school bus that was coming one last school bus with students. Later on, the authorities confirmed to us that they made a terrible mistake. There was no last school bus. That is absolutely beyond heartbreaking. Like heartbreaking is not the word for that. And the imagery is just holy shit it just literally just takes your soul and just crushes it down into nothing but it also really shows something and that is just how how big the range of devastation was like around this incident Mm -hmm. like yes you know these poor kids that were shot and killed in horrible ways and just you know everybody that survived also is traumatized like there's trauma all around but it spreads out so much bigger than that like it spreads out to these poor kids, parents, their grandparents, their their families, you know, the community, friends. 
I just, uh, God, my heart is just like sinking into my stomach. I just, I really had to like hold my shit together to not tear up when he was talking about the school bus. Like, oh no, I was definitely tearing up. I'm actually tearing up right now. Excuse me while I wipe it. Sorry. God. I'm trying not to cry over here, okay? I don't want to cry any more than I've already cried. At around 4.30 p.m., police found Eric and Dylan shot dead in the library by what appeared to be self-inflicted gunshot wounds. Eric and Dylan committed suicide in company of each other. Their bodies were close enough to touch. No one has a definite time or knows when exactly Eric and Dylan turned their guns on themselves, but one source did say the most fitting time seems to be anywhere from 12.08 to 12.15 p.m. It's believed that Eric and Dylan wanted to end things on their own terms instead of being prosecuted and spending time in prison. Goodness, But Dylan already had a overbearingly depressive disorder where, you know, he would just, he, it was self-destruction is what it was. And, you know, he did not flinch when it came to suicidal thoughts. And I think Eric's hatred fueled the two of them. And because it was self-destructive, Dylan just kind of went along with it. They kind of fed each other in a way. But I mean, you know, this isn't, this is an excuse hour. Of course not. Um, because it doesn't excuse what they've done. But, you know, speculation. It's something to think about, though. It just breaks my fucking heart, just all of this does. So around that same time, Sheriff John Stone said the death toll appeared to be up to 25. But the police declared the site secure after finding Eric and Dylan's bodies. At around 4.30 p.m., the SWAT team began another slow sweep of the building looking for survivors. Now I'm going to pause here and go back briefly for just a moment to when the diversionary bomb went off. Prior to the shootings at Columbine, you recall I told you there was a diversionary bomb they planted. Backpacks with things like in that field. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to avert the attention of officers and stuff. Yeah, so it exploded on the green belt near the... 7900 block of South Wadsworth Boulevard. The Jefferson County Sheriff's Office was notified of that explosion at 11.21 a.m. The Littleton Fire Department was the first responders and the investigation was led by Bill Marin of the West Metro Fire Department. His investigation revealed two backpacks containing explosive devices which were built with multiple components that had indeed been planted there by Eric and Dylan, of which only some of the components exploded. The examination of these devices provided immediate critical information about the construction and the sophistication involved with these devices, so information that was relayed to the command posts, the SWAT teams, and the bomb technicians on scene. So actually, by them setting up this diversionary bomb they kind of gave the clues of what they were working with inside the school. So during the initial sweep of Columbine, the highest priority was removing any such devices in the library so the bodies of the deceased could be removed from the scene. The second priority was assessing the cafeteria and other additional areas regarding safety. 
This plan worked well until two bombs with timing devices were found at 5.43 p.m. And these two devices were in Eric and Dylan's cars they parked outside. My goodness. So their attention was, of course, diverted again with the intention of removing these bombs with a remote-controlled robot, bomb suits, and a handful of balls because holy fuck. (laughs) I could not not do this job. If you're on the bomb squad, my hat goes off to you because, baby, <laughs> nerves of steel. <laughs> Fuck. You couldn't catch. You wouldn't catch me doing no shit like shit. that. <laughs> my hand would be shaking so much. You know the the quintessential handshake where you're trying to hold the fine china and it's clinging against the saucer. <laughs> yeah, that would be me, but in the bomb squad in that big old suit, sweating to death, just praying. I would honestly just faint. Faint, throw up, and die. (laughs) (laughs) So, before the school could be deemed clear and safe, every room, every storage area, every inch of this 250,000 square foot school had to be checked by bomb technicians. They checked a total of 1,952 student lockers and 700 backpacks for evidence of any type of explosives. This process took seven days from the time the incident occurred until the school was deemed safe for investigators to start their work. Approximately 357 pieces of explosive evidence were identified and collected. The investigation that followed revealed numerous different types of improvised explosive devices. There were 30 devices that detonated at Columbine. 13 outside, 5 in the library, 6 in the halls and classrooms, and 6 in the cafeteria. 46 devices that did not detonate were also counted. 2 outside, 26 in the library, 14 in the halls and classrooms, and 4 in the cafeteria. God! In Dylan's car, they found 12 more undetonated explosives and components for a car bomb. They found six more undetonated devices in Dylan's home. In Eric's car, they found one undetonated device and two more in his home. There were a total of 76 devices found at the school, two diversion devices, 13 found in total in their vehicles, and eight more at their homes, totaling in 99 explosive devices. That is absolutely just fucking insane. Like, insane. During a search of Eric's home, there were three significant homemade videotapes that were found. One tape recorded in 1999 includes a section where Eric and Dylan recorded their arsenal collection. And this video shows 21 pipe bombs of various sizes, also showing the CO2 cartridge bombs they referred to as crickets and grenades, of which Eric says there are 29 in total. In another tape, Eric reveals that they had 39 crickets, 24 pipe bombs, and napalm was under construction. Fucking napalm. My jaw is just on the floor, like literally on the fucking floor. So that's terrifying. He also discussed making the propane bombs as well, but just casually making weapons of war at age 17 Jesus. This is extreme. Like, this is this is 
beyond extreme. Yeah. Like, like very, very, very clearly. Yes. You know, I mean, who hasn't now this is a bit morbid, but who hasn't pulled into work and been like, man, I wish this building would just catch on fucking fire, <laughs> you know, just burn this job down to the fucking ground. But like, I can understand having slight hate for a specific place, but this is extreme, right? Like this is. Well, it's just way beyond. It still takes my breath away. Many items used to make the bombs were tracked by receipts, and many of them were found to be available at numerous retailers as well. They were able to use the tapes and the information in the homemade videos to narrow down where some of it was purchased from. So now that we're caught up on the explosive devices, now we are back on the day of April 20th, 1999, and it is 6.15 p.m., and authorities found and disarmed several devices in the parking lot by this time. Later that evening at 10.30, a bomb that was set on a timer had exploded. No one was injured, but it showed them that they were right to wait to process the scene until it was 100% safe. Right. As they also discovered that some of the bodies in the school had also been booby-trapped. <sighs> they actually took the time to booby-trap some of the bodies. By that Wednesday morning, police revised the death toll to 15. Based on a count of the bodies, 12 students, one teacher, and the two shooters. The Columbine shooting was, at the time, the worst high school shooting in U.S. history, and this tragedy prompted a national debate on gun control and school safety. It also sparked a major investigation into determining what motivated Eric and Dylan to do something like this. The FBI and its team of psychiatrists and psychologists have reached a conclusion. They believe they know why Eric and Dylan took to killing. Three months after the massacre, the FBI convened a summit in Leesburg, Virginia, that included world-renowned mental health experts, including Michigan State University psychiatrist Dr. Frank Ockberg, as well as Supervisory Special Agent Dwayne Fuselier. I hope I'm saying that last name right the FBI's lead Columbine investigator and a clinical psychologist. So they commented, quote, Columbine was intended not primarily as a shooting at all, but as a bombing on a massive scale. If they hadn't been so bad at wiring the timers, the propane bombs they set in the cafeteria would have wiped out 600 people. Six hundred. Six hundred. After those bombs went off, they planned to gun down fleeing survivors. An explosive third act would follow when their cars, packed with still more bombs, would rip through still more crowds, presumably of survivors, rescue workers, and reporters. The climax would be captured on live television. It wasn't just fame they were after. They were gunning for devastating infamy on the historical scale of Attila the Hun. Their vision was to create a nightmare so devastating and apocalyptic that the entire world would shudder at their power. End quote. 
So they were like, I mean, this is, I guess we, this should be common information at this point in your coverage, but like they were quite literally trying to kill everyone. Yes. Like absolutely everyone. Yes. Again. In fact, I don't know if I mentioned this in part one or part two. It might be in part one. But one of the first things that investigators came across when looking at Eric's, you know, personal journal that he started to write in, the first thing that was written was, I hate the fucking world and everyone in it. I can't. Right when you think you understand it in its entirety, you just turn around and then, nope, here we are. It's another level of just how absolutely just awful this is. Right. Like, I'm just so blown. I'm so blown. So the following clip is of FBI Special Agent Dwayne Fusilier's comments regarding Columbine and the shooter's behaviors. I am so sorry if I butchered that last name. I am trying. I'm going to play that clip for you now. These two students did not just snap. In this case, it was clear they began talking about doing something like this just about uh, a little over a year uh, before. Here's a side note. Do you know the reason why they picked April 20th, 1999? I do not know. And it definitely wasn't for 420. I'm just going to throw that out there right now. It definitely was not for that. They picked this date because it was Adolf Hitler's birthday. What? And they intended their plans to be just as shocking and traumatic as Hitler. Because you remember I said in part two, they were idolizing Hitler. Right. Like, they were doing the whole Heil Hitler salute and everything and... But were they neo-Nazis? Like, I don't believe so. I believe they did these things for shock value and to draw attention to themselves, trying to be, like, edgy or angsty, you know? Right. I remember when I was back in school, we always had that one kid who, you know, we were in orchestra class, okay? I was in orchestra. And our teacher spoke fluent German, and she played violin like a goddess but we always had that one kid in class who wore all black and started speaking german heil hitler bullshit and she kicked him out of the class for it because he was antagonizing her about speaking german now i witnessed that myself that is and that was back in like 2000s good early 2000s so yeah I think that they were doing it more so as, like, the shock value of it. Gotcha, which would make sense. In the aftermath of this massacre, many schools across America enacted zero-tolerance rules regarding disruptive behavior, bullying, and threats of violence from students. Mark Maines, who was the man who sold one of the four guns used in the attack to Eric and bought him 100 rounds of ammunition Mm -hmm. the day before the murders... He was sentenced to six years in prison. Another man Eric and Dylan mentioned in their basement tapes was Philip Duran, and he introduced the boys to Mark Maines. He was also sentenced to prison time. Despite Robin Anderson buying three of the four weapons used, she was not charged, and I explained why in part one, 
If you need a quick recap, she wasn't charged because she bought the three long guns from an unlicensed retailer at a gun show. She also testified exactly what was said and the fact that she had no idea what they were going to be used for outside of hunting or collecting. So Columbine High School reopened in the fall of 1999, but the massacre left a scar on the Littleton community. A massive wound for some that will never heal. Now we're going to take some time to talk about all of the victims. I'm not talking about just the injured. I'm talking about the, the actual deceased. Gotcha. Um, I want to give some space in this episode to honor and remember each person who lost their life the day of the shooting. These kids have families that are still grieving their loss to this day. And it's extremely heartbreaking. And I think it's really important that we take some time to discuss who these people were in life rather than focusing on the horribly tragic way that they were lost. So before we move forward, I would like to say that my heart breaks for these kids and for their families, and I give my most heartfelt condolences, and we wish nothing but healing and happiness to every person and every family that was changed forever by this incident. The people who didn't survive the massacre were all deeply cherished and loved by their friends and family, so this part of the episode is for them. Beautifully said. Thank you. Thank I'm you. on the verge of tears, <laughs> but that was beautifully said. I definitely agree with every single word of that. Just oh. yeah. So everybody, take a deep breath for me. Okay. That did make me feel a little better. Just a little better. It did. It did. 16-year-old John Robert Tomlin was born September 1st, 1982. John was a native of Wisconsin, and his family moved to Littleton in 1995 when his father, John Michael, got a job there with a heating firm. So John found the move difficult at first. He was shy, he was lonely, but he soon made friends with Jacob Youngblood and Brandon Sokol, both of whom later spoke at his funeral. John attended the Foothills Bible Church and belonged to the Riverside Baptist Church South Youth Group, where he met his girlfriend of seven months, Michelle Oder. His sister Ashley said the couple were nearly inseparable. Michelle commented and said, quote, he treated me like the queen of the world, end quote. Oh. He was gentle and kind, and family and friends remember his energy and the warmth of his smile. Oh, God. His mother said, quote, he had such a sense of humor. He was always making goofy faces, end quote. He loved church, lifting weights, and Chevrolet trucks. He had recently got his driver's license and had just bought an old Chevy pickup that he had been working and saving up for since he was 14. Now, he enjoyed off-roading in the Rocky Mountains, and he once drove all the way to Mexico to help build a house for a struggling family. He worked after school and on weekends at Arapaho Acres Nursery, hauling trees and driving tractors 30 hours a week. Goodness. And according to friends, he always wore the same thing to work, which were carpenter pants, mud cake boots, a blue cap, and a jacket featuring his favorite team, the Green Bay Packers. 
His ultimate goal was to join the Army after he graduated. John's truck became a standing memorial in the parking lot of Columbine High. And that Thursday following the shootings, his family gathered around the truck despite the fact that it was raining. His Bible was still sitting on the dashboard where he always left it in the hope that someone would see it sitting there and hope that it would bring them closer to God. His grandfather, his father, and other family members took turns sitting in his truck. His father, John Michael Tomlin, said, quote, He was as close to a perfect son as you could get. He was just good. You'd ask him to wash one car, and he'd wash both cars, end quote. His funeral was the first of the funerals for the victims killed at Columbine. His funeral was held at Foothills Bible Church where he had attended, and he was buried in his hometown of Waterford, Wisconsin, in St. Peter's Cemetery. He was buried in a satin-lined coffin of green and gold, the colors of his favorite team, embroidered with Chevy trucks. 17-year-old Rachel Joy Scott was born August 5, 1981. Rachel was a junior at Columbine. She was a beautiful, vibrant soul and a straightforward individual. She wasn't afraid to stand up for what she believed in. And she had an interest in photography, and she was an active member in the Celebration Christian Fellowship Church. She played the lead in a student-written school play called The Smoke in the Room which co-starred her friends Nick and Lauren. She was even writing her own play for her senior year. Her father, Daryl, commented and said she was, quote, made for the camera, end quote. Her mom, Beth, said, quote, there's nothing I can add or take away from what she gave us. In those short 17 years, it was complete, end quote. Rachel's family didn't know for certain if she was dead or not until her name was read off on the news from a list of the deceased that had been identified, but they all knew in their hearts that the worst was coming despite praying for her safe return. Rachel had always been close with her brother Craig, who was in the library during the shootings and he miraculously survived completely uninjured despite being right next to Isaiah Shoals and Matt Ketcher, who were shot and killed. Rachel experienced some difficulty connecting with her father in her life, and the last week before her death, Rachel and her dad had a long and bonding discussion, something that left both of them feeling incredibly happy and connected. For Daryl, that precious moment in conversation with his daughter would later give him comfort when dealing with her loss. Throughout her life, Rachel was an incredibly spiritual person who often wrote to God in her diaries about wanting to reach the unreached. She begged God for the chance to show others the way, to let her life have some purpose in spreading his word. Here is some spook for you. Maybe a divine message. But in 1998, Rachel drew a collage of images that included a rose growing out of the columbine, which is a flower, with several dark drops spiraling it. And on the morning of the shootings, she doodled a reprise of the picture, which was a pair of eyes crying 13 teardrops onto that same rose. (gasps) Oh, my God, the chills. 
which was the same number of victims the shooters would kill during the massacre just hours later. I did include this photo in our photo dump so you can look at it. It was drawn by Rachel before she was murdered. But after her death, Rachel's car was turned into a makeshift memorial by her friends where it sat in the parking lot. Rachel's friend Lauren Beecham said, quote, In my eyes, she was just one of those kinds of people you know you won't ever meet again. She was the kind of person only born once, end quote. Now, Dylan had known Rachel since kindergarten, and he had been the sound tech for a talent show that Rachel performed in in 1998. Ironically, when the sound messed up during her dance, it was Dylan who saved her performance by hooking up a reserve tape deck. Holy shit. Rachel performed a mime dance called Watch the Lamb, which portrayed Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus' cross along part of the Via Dolorosa. That same mime dance was later performed behind her coffin during her funeral. Rachel was buried at Chapel Hill Memorial Gardens in the Columbine Memorial Garden in Littleton, Colorado. Rachel Scott's diaries have inspired many victims of bullying, and her charity, Rachel's Challenge, is estimated to have reached out to 2 million students. Rachel's Challenge is a non-political, non-religious, non-profit organization dedicated to creating positive school cultures and ending bullying and school violence with their prevention program. Out of respect for Rachel, I wanted to share this information with you all briefly. This is not sponsored. I just truly believe in their mission and the positive work they're doing in communities all over. And I think it's something special to have come from something so tragic. So on rachelchallenge.org, they tell the story of Rachel Scott. This is an excerpt from that website. Quote, Rachel was just an ordinary teenager in many ways, but she believed that kindness could change the world. She wrote about it, she talked about it, and acted on it. After her death, stories emerged of the little things Rachel had done that had made a big difference in the lives of those around her. Starting with her example, we show what kindness looks like, what it feels like. We teach simple and easy ways to reach out and connect to each other emotionally with our school violence prevention programs. We model positive behavior that is compassionate and empathetic, and the results are life-changing, end quote. 15-year-old Daniel Lee Robau was born March 2, 1984. Daniel grew up spending every day after school and his whole summer on his grandfather's farm in Kansas harvesting wheat, and he had done this since he was three years old. He was remembered as a funny guy who enjoyed electronics and computer games, and he helped in his father's stereo business, Excalibur Sound Systems, and the money he was earning, he would use to buy Christmas presents for his family. He was a sweet kid who was excited to get his driver's permit soon. And that feeling of freedom and independence was something Daniel worked hard for. Although his parents were divorced, they were doing an amazing job raising Danny as they both made a pact to keep Danny as their first priority. His parents remarried and things seemed to be operating smoothly. Dan would spend time with both sides of his family, and he even gained a stepsister named Nicole. On Tuesday, April 20th, Danny's father, Brian, knew something wasn't right when his son didn't show up at the stereo shop after school 
like he usually would. After learning of his death, Dan's mother, Sue, started a load of laundry in order to do something normal, and she came across Daniel's shirt and socks. She said, quote, The little things just bring back the horror of the fact that he's not with us anymore, end quote. She didn't see Dan in the mornings very often before his death, but that last morning they managed to come together for a brief chat that ended with a hug, a kiss, and her telling him she loved him. And that interaction was the last time she would see him alive. Dan Robau's funeral was held at Grace Presbyterian Church, and he was buried in Littleton Cemetery in Littleton, Colorado. The slab of concrete that Danny died on where he laid for nearly two days on, mm -hmm. was taken up in one piece, and it was given to Danny's families. And they turned it into a sort of like memorial swing. I included a photo of it in our photo dump, and it's beautiful how they set it up. In the picture are both sets of families. Both of them love Danny very deeply. 17-year-old Cassie Renee Bernal was born November 6, 1981 to parents Misty and Brad Bernal. Her given nickname was Bunny Rabbit. Cassie was a junior at Columbine, and she absolutely loved to go rock climbing, and she had recently visited Great Britain, a trip that was inspired by her favorite movie, Braveheart. Cassie, like many her age, struggled on her road to self-discovery, but despite all the hardships she faced, Cassie found support in her friends and at her church. She started getting serious about her faith once she attended a church summer camp in 1997, where she became a born-again Christian. That fall, her parents allowed her to transfer out of her private school and into Columbine High, where she absolutely flourished. She got into Shakespeare and photography, and life seemed to be going great for Cassie. For a long time after the shootings, Cassie became somewhat of a martyr in her church community. It was believed that she was asked, Do you believe in God? by Eric, to which she responded, Yes, and this answer allegedly led Eric to kill her. This idea was inspiring to many, including her mother, Misty, who went on to write a book about her daughter titled She Said Yes, The Unlikely Martyrdom of Cassie Bernal, which was published September 1, 1999. And I mean this next part with absolutely no disrespect to Cassie or her family, but it did come out later that this story wasn't entirely accurate. The conversation actually occurred between gunman Eric Harris and surviving victim Valene Schnur, something that Valene and others who were present verified. Emily Wyant, who was hiding beside Cassie during the shootings, told the FBI and Rocky Mountain News the real story. RMN and the Denver Post sat on the true story as unconfirmed until September 24, 1999, because they preferred to run with the story. Dave Cullen, who was the reporter, is the one that broke the true story. Two weeks before that, the Post had been allegedly using this martyr story to promote Misty Bernal's book. So that's why they preferred to go with the martyr story instead of, like, the actual story. So when it was still believed that Cassie was the girl who said yes, she again became somewhat of a martyr in her Christian community. Her mother said she couldn't think of a more honorable way to die. But Cassie's mom told Oprah in 1999 
quote, I keep thinking about the things I need to do for Cassie, and then I catch myself. I don't need to do that. The Lord is taking care of those mom things I used to do, end quote. The popular band Flyleaf even wrote a song about Cassie Bernal named Cassie, which was released in 2005, and it skyrocketed in popularity after its release. During an interview with the Florida entertainment scene, Flyleaf's guitarist Jared Hartman explained that Lacey Mosley, who is the front woman, wrote the song after the shooting occurred because she thought it was really cool that Cassie Bernal stood up for what she believed in. Lacey further said that not many people stand up for what they believe in anymore and not many people in America are faced with death for what they believe in. So naturally, the story inspired Lacey to write a song about the strength of Cassie's convictions. Cassie was buried in a white coffin that attendees at her funeral could sign. Her mom wrote on it, Bunny Rabbit, my friend, my buddy, my daughter, my mentor. I will love you and miss you forever. I promise to take good care of your kitty. I know that Jesus is elated to have you in his presence. Your courage and commitment to Christ have gained you a special place in heaven, and I am proud to call you my daughter. I love you so much, Mom. End quote. Oh my God, my heart, man. Despite the fact that she didn't say anything to either of the gunmen, the story of the girl who said yes still inspires people all over the world to this very day. Cassie was officially laid to rest in Golden Cemetery in Golden, Colorado. 14-year-old Stephen Robert Kernow was born August 28, 1984, to parents Susan and Robert, whom he was very close to, as Steve was their only son. He wasn't their only child, he was just their only son. He was a freshman at Columbine who dreamed of one day becoming a Navy Top Gun pilot. He discovered his love for flight during a family vacation to England, and his favorite classes were Spanish, technology, and gym, mainly because he got to play sports. He absolutely loved soccer, and when he realized his soccer skills weren't strong enough to make the team at school, he continued to referee part-time and play part-time on the team that his dad coached. It was called the Colorado Rush. Steve's favorite color was green because it reminded him of the color of the soccer field. Steve was remembered as a huge fan of the Star Wars series. I mean, same. <laughs> Star Wars is amazing. But Steve watched the film so many times that he could recite the dialogue word for word. Science fiction fans nationwide put together a go-to Star Wars Memorial Day in Steven's honor when Star Wars 1 The Phantom Menace premiered in theaters on May 19, 1999. Steve had been anxiously awaiting the movie's release, but he never got to attend. At 14 years old, he was the youngest victim of the Columbine Massacre. His funeral was held at Trinity Christian Center, and members of the soccer team were among the mourners at his funeral. Justin Norman, a former teammate, stood at the podium and said, quote, Every time we'd play, he'd have a huge smile on his face, end quote. Justin's eulogy was one among a dozen friends that offered to give eulogies for Steve, and he was well-loved by his friends and family. His older sister Nancy said at the funeral that she was going to miss fighting with Steve over whose turn it was to take out the garbage, 
and whose turn it was to use the computer. She wondered who would tell stories to her own children about what she was like growing up. She'd been counting on her little brother for that. His mom wrote a note to Steve that was read at his funeral, and it said, quote, Thank you for that special moment two weeks ago when you said, Mom, I bet there aren't many guys who can discuss things with their moms like we do, end quote. Oh, my God. Steve was buried in Fort Logan National Cemetery in Denver, Colorado. The following was written by Steve shortly before his death. Quote, My favorite place is the soccer field because I am feared as a player and respected as a ref. I take all my anxiety on the ball and the whistle, and it is good exercise. End quote. 17-year-old Corey Tyler DePooter. He was born March 3, 1982. Corey was a junior who was described as an all-American kid who put schoolwork above everything else. He was so serious about school that he got upset when his wisdom teeth were removed because the procedure forced him to miss school. So he didn't oh. like that. Oh. Corey was a former wrestler who loved to hike. He loved wrestling, golf, hunting, and inline skating, but fishing was his passion. His little sister Jenna was a freshman at Columbine when her brother died. He taught her how to fly fish. And Jenna says she likes to imagine her brother doing something he loves. And fishing was definitely that something. When he was serious about something, he would go after it. Sources say he had recently taken a maintenance job at a golf club so he could save up money to buy a fishing boat with one of his friends. One friend said, quote, It was the times we didn't do well that his personality really shined, end quote. Another friend said, quote, When you're going fishing or camping, I know he's going to be there, watching and making sure you're doing everything right, end quote. His best friend Austin Eubanks later said, quote, People said he was the kind of guy people like to be around. I know I sure did. Corey was always able to pick our spirits up in a gloomy situation. End quote. Although Austin survived the shooting at Columbine, his story still ended very sadly. He died from an accidental heroin overdose on May 18, 2019 just weeks after Columbine's 20th anniversary. Austin struggled with an opioid addiction for years after the shooting and perhaps trying to cope with the trauma, but he had gotten hooked on painkillers while recovering from the injuries he sustained during the massacre. Corey was never far from Austin's thoughts in life, as he spoke about him often when he was at public speaking events. Austin felt the heavy loss of his best friend, Corey, up until the day he died. That just absolutely just breaks me down to nothing. This is so sad. Corey's mother, Patricia, told the Denver Post, quote, Corey would have told us to move on. He would not like us moping around. But there are days you just cry and cry and cry, end quote. His funeral was held at Trinity Christian Center. Soon after his death, his grandmother, Fern Hamilton, contacted the Marine Corps inquiring about holding some sort of special ceremony for Corey because he always wanted to become a Marine. And on May 3rd, 2000, Corey was granted that dream during a ceremony at his gravesite in Chapel Hill Memorial Gardens in Littleton, Colorado, where he was made an honorary Marine. 
Oh, my God. 16-year-old Kelly Ann Fleming was born January 6, 1983, to parents Dawn and Dee. Kelly and her family moved to Littleton from Phoenix, Arizona, and they had only been living in Littleton for 18 months prior to the shooting. Her father, Dawn, recalled that they scoured the area looking for a good neighborhood where their daughters would be safe, and they truly believed Littleton, Colorado would be that place. Kelly was a shy and creative girl who loved Halloween and was an aspiring songwriter and author. She wrote many poems and short stories based on her own life experiences. She had been writing an autobiography on her home computer. She started it with stories of her birth and she had gotten as far as her fifth year. Her stories often ended with a happy ending as well. I just had to throw that in there, by the way. She would regularly go to Columbine's library to write and research because someday she hoped she'd be a published author. And she also entered into different writing contests. She loved to read as well, especially books about vampires. Like, I love this girl. Same. I was about to say so same. (laughs) Kelly was just learning how to drive and she wanted to get a job at a daycare center so she could save enough money to buy a Mustang or a Corvette. She planned on returning to Phoenix for a visit or going on road trips with her friends. Her mother, Dee, remembered Kelly coming home from school just two short months before the shooting, and she remembered Kelly saying, I'm not shy anymore. She was finally coming out of her shell, and her life was snuffed out before she got the chance to live her life to the fullest. Her body was found near Lauren Townsend, and finding this out, Kelly's father said, quote, Here's one of the real leaders of the school, and R. Kelly was next to someone like that. I'm sure Lauren took care of Kelly. She wasn't alone, end quote. He also said he prayed for the parents of the shooters, quote, they'll have a tougher time getting over this than we will, end quote. Oh, my God, the goosebumps, literal goosebumps. Kelly's funeral was held at the same time as Daniel Mauser's at the St. Francis Cabrini Catholic Church. She was buried with two teddy bears in her arms. Her grave is located at Mount Olivet Cemetery in Wheat Ridge, Colorado. 15-year-old Daniel Connor Mauser was born June 25, 1983, to parents Linda and Tom. Daniel was described by his family as a shy, gentle soul who was not only lovable, but also loving. He was a sophomore at Columbine who excelled in math and science, but overall he received straight A's. Tom remembers his son to be a smart young man who wouldn't back down from a challenge, but he was also the sweet, lovable kid that wasn't ashamed to hug his parents. He was also close friends with his sister, Christine. He loved to be physically active as he was an amazing swimmer and he loved to hike. Tom hoped that in the summer of 1999 that he would take Daniel on his first 14,000 mountain hike. He loved pepperoni pizza, playing video games and computer games, and watching shows like The Simpsons and The X-Files. He is also really good at trivia and knowledge games as well, like this kid was super smart. He was also hoping to get his driver's license in 2000. Daniel attended Ken Carroll Middle School, which is the same school Dylan and Eric went to, but there's no record of them knowing each other. 
Daniel may have been shy, but he didn't let that stop him from joining the debate team and the cross-country team. He liked to ski and camp. He loved being active and being outside. He also had amazing adventures as he had recently returned from a two-week trip to Paris with the school's French club. And as I mentioned earlier, he received straight A's in his classes for the last two grading periods and he won the Stretch for Excellence Award for being named the top biology student of the sophomore class at Columbine High School. But sadly, he died before he could learn that he'd been selected for that honor. Daniel was also accepted for membership into the National Honor Society in September of 1999. He had applied for the membership weeks before he died. Daniel volunteered at the Swedish hospital and he was preparing for confirmation in the Catholic Church. He would have been confirmed at St. Francis Cabrini Church two weeks after the date of his death. His class put a plaque in the teen program room in Daniel's honor. Daniel was concerned with gun safety in America. Just two weeks before he was murdered, Daniel asked his father if he knew that there were loopholes in the Brady Bill. And Tom was motivated by what he interpreted as a sign for action because Daniel was shot with a gun that was purchased through the exact loophole that he had pointed out to his dad. Oh my fucking God. Tom is now an active protester of the NRA, and he continues to campaign for stricter gun laws in the wake of his son's tragic death. As I mentioned earlier, his funeral was held jointly with Kelly Fleming's at St. Francis Cabrini Catholic Church, and he was buried in Mount Olivet Cemetery in Wheat Ridge, Colorado. Not long after the shootings, Daniel's family, along with several other families of the victims, learned that the school district was planning to reopen the library where Daniel and many others had died. So the original plan was to make cosmetic changes, such as removing the carpet, repainting, and replacing shelves that were riddled with bullets. The families were upset by this notion, so the Mausers, along with several other parents and volunteers, founded HOPE, which is Healing of People Everywhere, and together they convinced the district to tear out the old library completely and replace it completely. They wanted to cut corners, and the family was like, oh, hell no, and I 100% agree with them. Right, I do too. I don't see how future children and future generations could sit in a library that still had evidence or remnants of what happened there. Right. I just, I don't understand that, especially the kids too that went through it and then had to go back. You would expect them to go back to school with traces of that shit. And the library looking exactly, exactly the, the same. same. Like, yeah. no, absolutely fucking not. So I have included a link in my show notes from Moms Demand Action. And they have an article that gives excerpts from Tom Mauser's book. And it's worth the read. 16-year-old Matthew Joseph Ketcher was born February 19th, 1983. He was a sturdy 210-pound athlete who was a sophomore at Columbine. We've all known a kid like this in school. The tall, bill, athletic, but goofy kid that was always a joy to be around. Like, we've all known someone like that. That was Matt Ketcher. He played on both the offensive and defensive lines of the football team. He was a weightlifter and an A student. 
He was always getting good grades in school and always spending his time in the library. Days after the shooting, his mother Anne slept in his dirty clothes just to feel close to her son. Man. Greg Barnes, who was a basketball player and a close friend of Matt, said, quote, When I heard he was one of the ones from the library, it only made sense. He was always in the library studying. He always put academics first. He had straight A's, but he would never brag about it. I kind of looked up to him because of it. He was never in a bad mood. He was consistently happy, end quote. Tragically, Greg Barnes committed suicide shortly after the first anniversary of the shootings of Columbine. The University of Colorado, where Matt had planned to attend, sent his younger brother Adam one of their jerseys bearing Matt's name and the jersey number he wore, number 70, as part of Columbine's football team. The Columbine High School football team all wore ribbons bearing his old jersey number and were asked to dedicate the next season to Matt's memory at his funeral service. The funeral was held at St. Francis Cabrini Catholic Church on April 27th. His parents wrote a statement and read it during the funeral, and in it they said, quote, He was a wonderful role model for his little brother. Their brotherhood had just recently developed into a bonding friendship. In Matt's heart, there was always enough room for everyone to be victorious, end quote. Matt was buried in Mount Olivet Cemetery in Wheat Ridge, Colorado. In September of 1999, Matt Ketcher was posthumously accepted into the National Honor Society. I'm including a link to an article that talked about parents who lost their children in Columbine who later turned to adoption, and it has been aiding them in their healing process. Many parents, the Ketchers, the Robals, the Petrones, they all turned to taking in a child that had lost a parent because they knew how difficult it was to lose a child. It's an amazing article that I wanted to include, so be on the lookout for that one. Eighteen-year-old Lauren Dawn Townsend was born January 17, 1981. Lulu was what everyone called her, and she was a senior and a driven captain of the girls' varsity volleyball team, which her mother, Dawn Anna, coached. She was a member of the National Honor Society and was a candidate for valedictorian of her graduating class. Lauren was also a very talented sketch artist. She was a straight-A student. She had it literally all together as she was known for never getting a B. She volunteered at a local animal shelter and had planned to major in biology at Colorado State University when she graduated from Columbine. Her funeral was held at Foothills Bible Church, where her brother Josh played a tribute video filled with moments from her life. Many of her teachers spoke at her funeral, commending her gentle nature and loving spirit as well as her academic excellence. Her coffin was a white one that people attending her funeral could write on, much like one would sign a yearbook. Her father wrote, Lulu, you'll always be my baby. She was buried in Littleton Cemetery in Littleton, Colorado. 16-year-old Kyle Albert Velasquez, born May 5, 1982. When Kyle was just a baby, he suffered a stroke that left him mentally disabled and he was also a severe asthmatic. 
As a special needs child, Kyle was often ignored, avoided, and teased while growing up. He knew what it was like to be an outcast. Due to his disabilities, Kyle's parents had prepared to spend the rest of their lives with him. He would accompany his mother everywhere while she ran her errands. Neighbors and relatives say Kyle enjoyed chores and family activities. They say he was a gentle giant as he was 6 feet tall and 230 pounds when he died. But those who knew him knew that he was a little boy at heart. He was always affectionate and sincere. He loved nothing more than helping his dad, Albert, around the house, putting up shelves, mowing the lawn, washing the car. Every day he would kiss his mom, Phyllis, on the cheek and tell her that he loved her. And that day, Kyle's last words to her were, Goodbye. I love you, Mom. A shy teen. I know. I'm like, you guys, I'm sorry. I've been so quiet through 90% of this uh, last part of the episode. I am struggling. I am struggling. I am struggling to keep my shit together. I have been fighting back tears this entire time. So, like, I'm really just... Sitting here, I'm clicking my seatbelt, and I'm really just trying my hardest to make it through this. My heart is just, I can't even describe to you what I feel. Like, I truly can't. Like, this is just a weight that I cannot describe. This is a sadness and a heaviness that I cannot describe. This is just absolutely some of the most horrible, heartbreaking shit that I've ever heard in my life. So, you know, please forgive my silence. I am I'm on the same roller coaster ride as the rest of you listening. I'm on the same one. A shy teen, Kyle had only been attending Columbine for 3 months and he was just beginning to come out of his shell when the massacre occurred. He dreamed of joining the Navy like his dad or becoming a firefighter. Kyle was buried with military honors in Fort Logan National Cemetery in Denver, Colorado, since his father was a Navy veteran. His parents were given the flags that were used in his honor. One from his coffin and the other one that was flown at half-mast in Kyle's honor at the state capitol. Members of the West Bowles Community Church planted 15 trees at Columbine for all 15 people who died, including Eric and Dylan. Al, Kyle's father, and Danny Robaugh's father, Brian, they went to the school and chopped down the two trees planted for Eric and Dylan. Yeah. 18-year-old Isaiah Eamon Scholes was born August 4th, 1980 with a heart defect, and his parents said that he was a fighter who overcame his disability and went on to make the absolute most out of his life before it was snatched away from him. He had played cornerback the previous year on the football team, but his father claimed he quit, quote, possibly because of racial intimidation, end quote. And I hate that so much because, sadly, that was very much a thing back then as it is today. Like, I think it happened more back then because people, again, back then didn't talk openly about racism, bullying, mental health, misogyny, and many other things. I was the only girl on the wrestling team back in 2002-2003. And my coach was so sexist. Like, I had to work harder to prove myself. So, I think his parents were correct in their assumption. Tangent over, I'm just saying that, like, that is very much a thing. Like, if the coach has certain preconceived notions about you, 
they will actually pressure you until you get off the team. Wonderful. We I love don't, that. I don't know if it happens for everyone, but it definitely happened to me. And um, allegedly it had happened to Isaiah as well, sadly. Isaiah was a senior at Columbine when he was tragically murdered. He wanted to be a comedian and he played keyboards. And most of all, he wanted to become a record producer like his father, Michael, who was the president of Notorious Records and Fort Knox Entertainment, which was a firm Michael started to promote black musicians in the Denver area. So after graduation, Isaiah had planned to attend the Denver Institute of the Arts. Isaiah was a popular boy who was nicknamed Bushwick. Bushwick. That was his nickname, was Bushwick. And I think that is the cutest fucking nickname I've ever heard in my whole life. Same. Columbine principal Frank DeAngelis said at Isaiah's funeral that his classmates would compete to work on school projects with him. Quote, Isaiah Scholes, thank you for having such a positive impact on our school and on our family. You will be greatly missed, and I love you, my dear child. End quote. Oh, my God. His classmate and friend Nick Foss said, quote, he's smiling down on us. I know he is. End quote. Isaiah was the last of the Columbine victims to be buried, and Isaiah was laid to rest in Fairmont Cemetery in Denver, Colorado. Martin Luther King III, son of Martin Luther King Jr., spoke at Isaiah's funeral at the Heritage Christian Center. The teacher that lost his life was 47-year-old William Dave Sanders, and he was born October 22, 1951. Dave was a computer and business teacher at Columbine for 25 years and a coach of the girls' basketball and softball teams. He left behind his wife, four children, and five grandchildren. His students said that he was a teacher, a friend, a mentor, and an inspiration. When the gunmen started firing outside the school, he ran to the cafeteria and sounded the alarm. He, along with two of the school's janitors, helped get more than 100 students out of the path of danger by herding them away from the shooters. He saved untold numbers of lives that day. His last words were reported to be, tell my family I love them. Dave's daughter, Angela, said at his funeral, quote, What you did in that school on Tuesday was an amazing act of heroism. Even after you were hurt, you continued to be brave. You continued to be the brave, selfless man we all know you are, end quote. Dave was buried in Littleton's Chapel Hill Memorial Gardens. Since his death, Coach Dave Sanders has had a softball field at Columbine and a scholarship named after him to honor his memory and after his death. He received the Arthur Ashe Award for Courage, and he now has a highway named after him in his honor. Now, that is all of the victims. Now, some victims and families of people killed or injured filed suit against the school and the police. Most of these suits were later dismissed in court. For some parents, the injuries their child or children sustained was so, so much for them, too much for them, that Ann Hawkhalter's mother, Carla, spiraled into such a bad depression that she walked into Englewood, Colorado pawn shop, asked to see a revolver, loaded the revolver with her own ammunition, and shot herself in the head. Yeah. 
Described as loving and kind, the 48-year-old died at Swedish Medical Center minutes after paramedics carried her into the ER. Gun control and disagreements over the interpretation of the Second Amendment continue to be a controversial issue in the United States, where an estimated 45,000 people die from gun-related injuries each year. Here are a few things that I found to either be inspirational or things of note. Brooks Brown's story is best told in his own words. In the book I referenced earlier on called No Easy Answers, The Truth Behind Death at Columbine High School, I strongly suggest anyone researching the shootings to read this book. He knew what Eric and Dylan were like together and his book sheds light on what things were like before the day of the attack. I was unable to get my hands on this book, but it came to me highly recommended. And the excerpts I've read of it were either included in my coverage or helped me with certain things in the timeline. So in 2004, he was interviewed by FHM regarding his prior friendship with Eric and Dylan and how Eric let him leave before attacking the school. Brooks is quoted saying, quote, Eric and Dylan created this tragedy, but Columbine created them, end quote. Oh, fuck. Mark Taylor, who was a survivor of the shooting, recalled, quote, I was just thinking I was going to die, end quote. His injuries defied the odds, traversing his chest cavity at logic-defying, life-saving angles that confounded the emergency medical workers who treated him. His primary care physician, his family physician, William Deagle, who is also a born-again Christian, called Mark's recovery supernatural. Oh, my goodness, yeah. man. Yeah, so, like, even though he got shot, the angles that the bullets went through his body is just, like... Just happened to not be fatal. Right. That is so insane. So, Mark says, quote, It wasn't luck. Like, you're playing a poker game and you get lucky. This was a miracle. I have no idea why I'm still here, end quote. Chills. Sean Graves, although paralyzed from the chest down due to his injuries he sustained at Columbine, he was told he would never walk again. But Sean wasn't going to accept that, and he busted his ass day in and day out in rehabilitation, and now Sean Graves is walking to tell the tale. Holy shit. I mean, that's wonderful news, but just... Holy shit. Yeah, he had a goal of walking across the stage for his graduation, and he actually accomplished that goal. Wow, that is a, that is nothing short of absolutely amazing, honestly. And now I want to bring to light a TED Talk that hosted Sue Klebold, Dylan Klebold's mother. And what she had to say was, for me, enlightening and eye-opening, and I think it will be for you guys as well. I want to play it in its entirety. It's no longer than 15 minutes. If you don't want to hear what she has to say, then by all means, skip ahead. It's going to be 15 minutes long, and I am going to play that clip for you now. The last time I heard my son's voice was when he walked out the front door on his way to school. He called out one word in the darkness, bye. It was April 20th, 1999. Later that morning at Columbine High School, my son Dylan and his friend Eric killed 12 students and a teacher, and wounded more than 20 others before taking their own lives. Thirteen innocent people were killed, 
leaving their loved ones in a state of grief and trauma. Others sustained injuries, some resulting in disfigurement and permanent disability. But the enormity of the tragedy can't be measured only by the number of deaths and injuries that took place. There's no way to quantify the psychological damage of those who were in the school or who took part in rescue or cleanup efforts. There's no way to assess the magnitude of a tragedy like Columbine, especially when it can be a blueprint for other shooters who go on to commit atrocities of their own. Columbine was a tidal wave, and when the crash ended, it would take years for the community and for society to comprehend its impact. It has taken me years to try to accept my son's legacy. The cruel behavior that defined the end of his life showed me that he was a completely different person from the one I knew. Afterwards, people asked, "How could you not know? What kind of a mother were you?" I still ask myself those same questions. Before the shootings, I thought of myself as a good mom, helping my children become. Caring, healthy, responsible adults was the most important role in my life, but the tragedy convinced me that I failed as a parent, and it's partially this sense of failure that brings me here today. Aside from his father, I was the one person who knew and loved Dylan the most. If anyone could have known what was happening, it should have been me, right? But I didn't know. Today I'm here to share the experience of what it's like to be the mother of someone who kills and hurts. For years after the tragedy, I combed through memories, trying to figure out exactly where I failed as a parent. But there are no simple answers. I can't give you any solutions. All I can do is share what I have learned. When I talk to people who didn't know me before the shootings. I have three challenges to meet. First, when I walk into a room like this, I never know if someone there has experienced loss because of what my son did. I feel a need to acknowledge the suffering caused by a member of my family who wasn't here to do it for himself. So first, with all of my heart, I'm sorry if my son has caused you pain. The second challenge I have is that I must ask for understanding and even compassion when I talk about my son's death as a suicide. Two years before he died, he wrote on a piece of paper in a notebook that he was cutting himself. He said that he was in agony and wanted to get a gun so he could end his life. I didn't know about any of this until months after his death. When I talk about his death. As a suicide, I'm not trying to downplay the viciousness he showed at the end of his life. I'm trying to understand how his suicidal thinking led to murder. After a lot of reading and talking with experts, I've come to believe that his involvement in the shootings was rooted not in his desire to kill, but in his desire to die. The third challenge I have when I talk about my son's Murder-suicide is that I'm talking about mental health. Excuse me. Excuse me. Is that I'm talking about mental health, 
or brain health, as I prefer to call it, because it's more concrete. And in the same breath, I'm talking about violence. The last thing I want to do is to contribute to the misunderstanding that already exists around mental illness. Only a very small percent of those who have a mental illness are violent toward other people. But of those who die by suicide, it's estimated that about 75 to maybe more than 90 percent have a diagnosable mental health condition of some kind. As you all know very well, our mental health care system is not equipped to help everyone, and not everyone with destructive thoughts fits the criteria for a specific diagnosis. Many who have ongoing feelings of fear or anger or hopelessness are never assessed or treated. Too often, they get our attention only if they reach a behavioral crisis. If estimates are correct. That about one to two percent of all suicides involves the murder of another person. When suicide rates rise, as they are rising for some populations, then murder suicide rates will rise as well. I wanted to understand what was going on in Dylan's mind prior to his death, so I looked for answers from other survivors of suicide loss. I did research and volunteered to help. With fundraising events, and whenever I could, I talked with those who had survived their own suicidal crisis or attempt. One of the most helpful conversations I had was with a coworker who overheard me talking to someone else in my office cubicle. She heard me say that Dylan could not have loved me if he could do something as horrible as he did. Later, when she found me alone. She apologized for overhearing that conversation, but told me that I was wrong. She said that when she was a young single mother with three small children, she became severely depressed and was hospitalized to keep her safe. At the time, she was certain that her children would be better off if she died, so she had made a plan to end her life. She assured me that a mother's love was the strongest bond on earth. And that she loved her children more than anything in the world, but because of her illness, she was sure that they would be better off without her. What she said, and what I've learned from others, is that we do not make the so-called decision or choice to die by suicide in the same way that we choose what car to drive or where to go on a Saturday night. When someone is in an extremely suicidal state. They are in a stage four medical health emergency. Their thinking is impaired, and they've lost access to tools of self-governance. Even though they can make a plan and act with logic, their sense of truth is distorted by a filter of pain through which they interpret their reality. Some people can be very good at hiding this state, and they often have good reasons for doing that. Many of us have suicidal thoughts at some point, but persistent, ongoing thoughts of suicide and devising a means to die are symptoms of pathology. And like many illnesses, the condition has to be recognized and treated before a life is lost. But my son's death was not purely a suicide; it involved mass murder. I wanted to know how his suicidal thinking. Became homicidal. 
but research is sparse, and there are no simple answers. Yes, he probably had ongoing depression. He had a personality that was perfectionistic and self-reliant, and that made him less likely to seek help from others. He had experienced triggering events at the school that left him feeling debased and humiliated and mad. And he had a complicated friendship with a boy who shared his feelings of rage and alienation, and who was seriously disturbed, controlling, and homicidal. And on top of this period in his life of extreme vulnerability and fragility, Dylan found access to guns, even though we'd never owned any in our home. It was appallingly easy for a 17-year-old boy to buy guns, both legally and illegally, without my permission or knowledge. And somehow, 17 years and many school shootings later, it's still appallingly easy. What Dylan did that day broke my heart, and as trauma so often does, it took a toll on my body and on my mind. Two years after the shootings, I got breast cancer, and two years after that, I began to have mental health problems. On top of the constant, perpetual grief, I was terrified that I would run into a family member of someone Dylan had killed, or be accosted by the press, or by an angry citizen. I was afraid to turn on the news. Afraid to hear myself being called a terrible parent or a disgusting person, I started having panic attacks. The first bout started four years after the shootings, when I was getting ready for the depositions and would have to meet the victims' families face to face. The second round started six years after the shootings. When I was preparing to speak publicly about murder-suicide for the first time at a conference, both episodes lasted several weeks. The attacks happened everywhere: in the hardware store, in my office, or even while reading a book in bed. My mind would suddenly lock into this spinning cycle of terror, and no matter how hard I tried to. Calm myself down or reason my way out of it. I couldn't do it. It felt as if my brain was trying to kill me, and then being afraid of being afraid consumed all of my thoughts. That's when I learned firsthand what it feels like to have a malfunctioning mind, and that's when I truly became a brain health advocate. With therapy and medication and self-care. Life eventually returned to whatever could be thought of as normal under the circumstances. When I look back on all that had happened, I could see that my son's spiral into dysfunction probably occurred over a period of about two years, plenty of time to get him help. If only someone had known that he needed help and known what to do. Every time someone asks me, "How could you not have known?" it feels like a punch in the gut. It carries accusation and taps into my feelings of guilt that no matter how much therapy I've had, 
I will never fully eradicate. But here's something I've learned: if love were enough to stop someone who was suicidal from hurting themselves, suicides would hardly ever happen. But love is not enough, and suicide is prevalent. It's the second leading cause of death for people aged 10 to 34, and 15 percent of American youth report having made a suicide plan in the last year. I've learned that no matter how much we want to believe we can, we cannot know or control everything our loved ones think and feel. And the stubborn belief that we are somehow different—that someone we love would never think of hurting themselves or someone else—can cause us to miss what's hidden in plain sight. And if worst-case scenarios do come to pass, we'll have to learn to forgive ourselves for not knowing, or for not asking the right questions, or not finding the right treatment. We should always assume that someone we love may be suffering, regardless of what they say or how they act. We should listen with our whole being, without judgment, and without offering solutions. I know that I will live with this tragedy, with these multiple tragedies, for the rest of my life. I know that in the minds of many, what I lost can't compare to what the other families lost. I know my struggle doesn't make theirs any easier. I know there are even some who think I don't have the right to any pain, but only to a life of permanent penance. In the end, what I know comes down to this. The tragic fact is that even the most vigilant and responsible of us may not be able to help. But for love's sake, we must never stop trying to know the unknowable. Thank you. That honestly broke my heart mm-hmm. in so many ways. Like there are just so many things I can point out with what she said. A, I agree heavily. With everything that she touched on,、um, what she was saying about how she was so demonized、yeah. after the attack, I think that's really, really sad. She had nothing to do with it. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I just, I think it's really sad. You know, like her talking about how she had to look over her shoulder and she was just, she started having panic attacks, thinking about like if she ran into family members or other parents of children that Dylan had killed. That just breaks my heart. Like how how much this not only devastated literally everyone else's lives, of course, you know,、yeah. but it really, really destroyed hers as well. I like the fact that she brought up, you know, what kind of a mother were you, and how could you not have known? Because you know, when you're a parent, there is literally only so much that you know about your own child, and I know that、right. that's like. Oh well, you're not as involved as you think you are. Well, no, that's not the case. I mean, if we all go back to a time when we were children, 
we never told our parents everything. No, definitely not. You know? <laughs> definitely and, not. And we bonded more with people that we found were friends or, you know, we kind of built our own family back then. So we picked and choose, you know, like who we told what we were doing with. Right. So, of course, she's not going to know. Especially, you know, looking at this just isn't like some some teenage antics or whatever that he didn't want to tell his mom this was very clearly much more extreme than that so i mean i don't i believe her when she says that she didn't know and it breaks my heart that she encounters so much demonization and people telling her that she doesn't even have a right to feel pain like that specifically broke my heart when she said that it's sad and then if you want to get off of not only the topic of like what she has went through as Dylan's mother because of what he did, but you touch on what she says about mental health and how it correlates to pretty much everything else in society. Like, what was it that she said? I may have the statistic wrong, but didn't she say that suicide was like the second lead cause of death in like teenagers up in like 17 to age 35 or something like that? That's a scary number. And at the end of the day, it's like you said, like way in the beginning of part two, I believe um, you brought up that people really like to demonize Eric and Dylan, of course, because holy shit, there will never be an excuse for what they did. Like there's just nothing that will ever defend that. There is no excuse in the book that will work for that. But at the end of that or at the end of this with what you've covered in this whole journey of three parts of talking about this at the end of it. I still truly don't believe that these kids were evil. Mm -hmm. And I know that might be really hard for a lot of you to hear. Um, I'm not, again, not defending them. What they did was absolutely evil. Absolutely. But I don't think they were evil. I think this aspect of mental health and all of its dangers, if not talked about and taken seriously, I think that's more so the message. I think that's more so the message here because it just it really, really breaks my heart. You know, you can't listen to what Sue said and just not feel that way. Like you, you hear the way she talks about Dylan and the way she talks about her life, raising him and loving him and being there for him. But she just paints this whole picture of being his mom and the things that she didn't know. And when she looks back on it now, she's like, you know, holy shit, I kind of see a couple of things now. But how do you really know? Yeah. And the importance of that, I think, is very, very great. I think that pretty much sums up like the main points I wanted to take away from that because mm-hmm. I don't want to talk forever and ever about it. But that was extremely heavy. I truly agree with her. And, you know, while we're on the conversation about it, I'm going to get real vulnerable for a minute. But I think that it is going to drive home the point that we're talking about here. Um, as a parent, I have a child that was dealing with suicidal thoughts and um, attempts. And as a parent, you know, me and him have a lot of really close talks, Mm -hmm. a lot of close talks that I don't think a lot of parents have the time to be able to sit and talk to their child about. Right. I absolutely love your kids. They're basically my siblings. (laughs) But, you know, when all of that was going on, I can 100% tell you that I had absolutely no clue of what was going on with him before that happened. And that wasn't a reflection of you not loving him or being there with him. That was a reflection of him not talking about 
how he felt about certain situations. He was dealing with bullying at school. And, um, you know, my kids, they're amazing. And my son tries to protect me from a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't realize that, like, all the things that I've been through in my life, I don't need to be protected. (laughs) But he still still does his best to protect me. And I, I think that was his way of, you know, trying to protect me from what he was feeling because he didn't want to hurt me because he was feeling that way. Right. And, you know, I'm bringing this up because if we're talking about mental health, you know, my child comes from a very loving home. I'm not a strict parent, but I'm a gentle parent. Right. Um, But, you know, when that happened with my son, and yes, my son is still alive, but um, when that happened, that situation happened with my son, I remember going through the guilt of being like, well, how the fuck could you not know? Like, you're supposed to know. You're supposed to see these things. You're supposed to catch all the signs. And I didn't either. So, you know, I can't sit and demonize Sue Klebold at all because... What you know, she speaks is very truthful. It's very true. And it's a lot very of true. This, a lot of this happens in our homes a lot more than we like to admit or talk about. Right. You know, so I think it I think it was just very important to bring up this specific point when talking about Columbine because you have so many people that were affected by an event. Not only did it happen because those two people were dealing with mental illness. But then after that event, the trauma that it caused created mental illness in a lot of the victims and the victims' families. And the survivors, right? Which caused more suicides to happen. So I think the more that we talk about mental health and the less that we demonize it and the less that we think that it's scary. I mean, it can get scary, but, you know, people that deal with a mental illness, as Sue said... You know, there's a very small percentage of them that take out how they feel on another human being. In a violent manner, right. In a violent manner. Right. So, you know, I'm just, I'm going to get off this tangent, but But I just. It's a really good conversation, though, because that's, you know, I'm obviously not a parent, but you are, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. So that's just a point that you really resonated with, and it drives her point home further. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just one of those things. I think it was a good point to be brought up. It's very sad, and my. My heart breaks for every single person involved equally. Like, I can't even begin to describe that. But right. hearing her speak and you can just, I don't know how to explain it. You can almost hear that plea for someone to listen to her and to hear her point. You can just, you just get this vibe when you hear her talk about Dylan and how much she loved him and how much she believed she was there for him. And then just how it completely destroyed her world. I don't know. You just you really get a vibe when you listen to her speak about how she raised Dylan and how she loved Dylan and how she truly never, ever thought that he would be capable of thinking of or doing something on the caliber that he did. You just get this vibe that she really wants her point to be heard. And it's important shit. And I'm honestly really glad we sampled the whole thing and got to hear all of it. I just it's heavy. My heart truly breaks for every single person involved. It's just so heavy. You know, it's so funny that you brought that up because I had saved in my photos a quote from her that I was going to include, but I didn't know where to include it. But um, it's so funny that you were talking about that because she says, quote, there is perhaps no harder truth for a parent to bear, but it is one that no parent on earth knows better than I do. And it is this. 
Love is not enough. My love for Dylan, though infinite, did not keep Dylan safe, nor did it save the 13 people killed at Columbine High School or the many others injured and traumatized. I miss the subtle signs of psychological deterioration that, had I noticed, might have made a difference for Dylan and his victims. All the difference in the world. End quote. Goodness gracious. Goodness, goodness, goodness. So the legacy that Columbine left behind inspired others to carry out more devastation as time passed. As she was talking about a blueprint for other shooters, Mm -hmm. it was indeed a blueprint for other people. It's hard to believe that anyone could find inspiration in what Eric and Dylan did, but I think overall there are a lot of people struggling mentally and they don't have the support systems they need to function in this kind of society. So that is no way an excuse for any of them and the vicious and brutal attacks that they would carry out. Right. On October 21st, 2013, a 13-year-old student in Sparks, Nevada, armed with a semi-automatic handgun, opened fire on a middle school campus just before the morning bell, and he wounded two boys and killing a teacher who was trying to protect other children. He then took his own life, and they found pictures of Eric and Dylan in his cell phone. Oh, my... On April 9th, 2014, a 16-year-old boy goes on a stabbing rampage at his school, injuring 24 at the Franklin Regional High School in Murraysville near Pittsburgh. On May 1st, 2014, police stopped a 17-year-old Minnesota student from bombing and shooting his classmates. He was videotaped setting off his homemade bombs. And of course, you have other school shootings like Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook, Uvalde, and so many more that were either inspired by or tied to the tragedy at Columbine. These mass school attacks continue to raise questions about school safety and how it corresponds with gun control in the United States. There were 51 school shootings just last year alone. 51. 51. 51 school shootings in the United States just last year. Holy fuck. And personally, I see the benefits of having firearms, I believe we all have the right to protect ourselves. We all have the right to bear arms. I'd own one myself if I had the bones for it, you know, but I always want to point out that Eric and Dylan were kids who clearly needed help. And that statement isn't to minimize what they did at all, but it's a perspective you have to have when you look at this story. Like, they clearly were not dealing with what they were feeling in a positive way, and they completely snapped with absolutely no warning. So I want to end today's episode by saying that if you or a loved one was involved or, you know, you were a victim of Columbine, my heart goes out to you completely. You know, this is not to diminish or to minimize the pain that you went through. We are not trying to capitalize on anyone's pain or exploit anyone's trauma. Definitely not. So I just wanted to point that out and also say that if you or a loved one is struggling with suicidal thoughts, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by dialing 988. The call can be completely anonymous, but they will talk to you and work with you to get you the proper help that you need. So hopefully you can take the steps to get a positive quality of life back. Gage and I both are huge advocates for mental health awareness. 
as we both struggle with our own battles daily. Oh, boy, do we oh ever. Oh, boy, do we ever. But, um, <laughs> you know, we all have a story and we all equally deserve happiness and healing. And our message to you as a collective at the end of this is remember that you are worthy. You are enough. You are cherished, loved, important, and appreciated always. And that concludes my three-part coverage on Columbine. Whoa, we, this was quite the journey. That it was. Like, holy shit. I'm, like, I'm so glad it's done. I'm so over this. Like, I don't know. I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for everyone listening. But from the beginning of part one till now, A, your coverage was fucking insane <laughs> oh, thank you thank you absolutely insane i am very proud of your research like you you for sure did the damn thing like you really did the damn thing but from from the beginning of part 1 till now i have a totally different understanding of this incident than i had before we started um I can't explain how heavy it is. I think throughout the three parts that we've covered, we've had a good bit of tangents. So I'm, you know, not going to repeat myself and just go on another tangent here at the end. But uh, you really, truly blew my mind and completely changed the way that I thought about this. It is truly heartbreaking. Woo. I don't really know what else to say to that. I'm just I'm so happy that next week we don't have to talk about this. Well, you know, I would like to say in the outgoing notes that had I not had the resource of the Columbine site and everything that it had to offer, I I don't think that this this coverage would have been the way that it was as complete because that site literally is your go to for anything that you want to know. Gotcha. Anything. Um, so, you know, it really helped me put together my timeline. It really helped me with all of the facts because there are literally so many facts in this case. And this story has not been told in its entirety like this for right. that I have seen. Right. But, you know, I just really wanted it to be fact heavy and to also like just give you the full picture of what was really going on underneath the surface and the day of because without understanding what happened underneath the surface you're not going to understand why this happened right because this was such a senseless and just no warning kind of a thing yeah that, it was my a, god again it was a very i don't believe eric and dylan were evil necessarily but what they did was nothing short of absolutely evil so we are going to leave it at that, you guys. Uh, come next week, I still have my two-parter. I wish I could tell you that it was going to be a mental health break of some sort, but unfortunately, it is not. No, this is transformed <laughs> into six weeks of suffer. Six weeks of suffer continues. So if you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird... <laughs> <laughs> well, you can totally do that. You can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. 
at Gore Report Podcast. And normally after that, Ray would announce our Twitter handle, but Twitter is no longer Twitter. It's now X or some stupid shit. So honestly, you guys, we're probably not going to use that anymore. So just find us on Facebook and Instagram. So yeah. 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 And until next time. Bye. Bye.